0: On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the Russian Defense Ministry to deploy troops into pro-Moscow territories in Ukraine, escalating what could evolve into the largest military conflict since the Second World War. As the United States and its European allies put forth sanctions on Russia, it needs to be wary of a geopolitical threat looming in the background. China What is Beijing thinking, seeing the Moscow-Ukraine crisis unfold? Will supporting Ukraine distract the United States military presence in the Indo-Pacific? Is Putin talking to Xi Jinping? And how does the February 4th joint statement by Russia and China play into this?
1: Today, we we sit down with
0: Dr. Anders Kaur, geopolitical expert uh, and uh, and and author uh, of The Concentration of Power, to talk about the crisis unfolding in Eastern Europe, and how this might change the landscape among the United States, China, and Ukraine. This is Forbidden News, and I'm Gary Bai. Dr. Anders Kaur, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. So you have worked on quite a few national security risk uh, analysis for the United States military and you've done work for both the Pacific Special Special Operations and the United States European Command. And sort of what transpired on the eastern borders of Ukraine yesterday really kind of falls squarely in your field of expertise. Uh, So as of the recording of this episode, Vladimir Putin has recognized the independence of pro-Russian territories. Uh, proceeded to order the deployment of troops in the separatist regions and Western countries, Have uh, put forth sanctions. Uh, so your, your reflections on the big picture here.
1: Well, Putin just invaded Ukraine, uh, the sovereign territory of Ukraine, uh, violated its territorial integrity, uh, violated his promises in the Minsk Accords, um, the Budapest Agreement, Um, You know, he's been lying essentially right up to the end, uh, claiming that he's not planning to invade. And then, of course, last night he does it. Um, So the response of the international community is very swift. Uh, There will be and there are being imposed uh, economic sanctions on Russia, Russian individuals who are involved. Um, And there's a lot of push, I think, from the uh, parliaments of the of the european countries to increase sanctions significantly Um, you know the the other issue here is that it's pulling attention away from the china uh, china issue um, which is because china is 10 times more uh, powerful economically by gdp than russia um, and its military expansion is much quicker than Russia and it arguably has a lot of influence over Russia in terms of because Russia sells massive quantities of oil and gas to China Uh, so it has that client relationship Um, China arguably is the bigger threat but what's happening with this uh, very public invasion and uh, military exercises that have turned into an invasion is that uh, people are getting distracted from that bigger threat, I think. And I think we are already seeing this um, in the British Parliament, actually today um, live, as the uh, British discussion of the situation. And they're already saying uh, that they are, you know, they're justifying essentially um, the focus on the Atlantic and Europe, as opposed to um, an Indo-Pacific tilt, which is the other option. Uh, to think about Europe and the United States together balancing against China's rising threat. Um, So that's the big picture I would say.
0: And so I kind of want to zoom in on China here because this is an underreported aspect of this entire conflict. Uh, So China is definitely a strategically important consideration for Washington but some would argue that China is in quite a bit of a tough position here. This happened at the time when Russia and China are kind of being forced together by external pressures from liberal democratic countries. And analysts say that Beijing doesn't want its relationship with Washington to become even more hostile than it already is. And, and some are saying that China is conflicted on its sovereignty narrative on Ukraine. And you know, some are even speculating those, uh, that it's eyeing on Taiwan as this crisis unfolds. So from Beijing's perspective, what are they thinking?
1: Well, I think China does definitely have its eye on Taiwan. Um, China will be watching what we do, what Russia does uh, in terms of Ukraine as a lesson that it can take home in terms of its strategy for Taiwan. So I think that if we don't truly punish Russia in a serious way, um, you know, we will be giving the green light to China to do the same thing to Taiwan. At the same time, we can't let China off the hook Um, in this current conflict. China has been encouraging Russia, I think, um, in this direction for a long time. Um, It certainly hasn't been vocal in opposition to uh, what Russia is doing, and it had many chances to do that behind the scenes or not. Um, It certainly isn't imposing economic sanctions on Russia uh, for the violation of the territorial integrity of another country. Um, So I think actually that what Russia is doing today is very much in in China's interest. If Russia and NATO uh, get into a conflict and Europe uh, and the United States um, and Russia are weakened because of this, it essentially opens up a path for China uh, and the Chinese Communist Party, more specifically, to seek the global hegemony that it wants. It's very clear that uh, the CCP is seeking global hegemony. Uh, Rosh Doshi has written a a book on it called The Long Game, uh, which I recommend that everyone read. It's Oxford University Press. This conflict with Russia, between Russia, Ukraine, NATO, the United States, uh, and allies, fits very well into that plan. I'm not saying it was pre-planned in that way, but I do think it fits very well, and I do think if you look... Back over recent history between Russia um, and China, including the the signing recently of a joint document um, that seems to support Russia's claims, uh, you know, and that as in terms of um, being anti-NATO and anti-NATO expansion, I think you'll see that China actually has a hand, a complicity, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. that fits with its long-term goals.
0: Right. So, and and you covered a little bit of China's, uh, you know, perspective here. Um, but should from from this uh, perspective of the United States, uh, should in the scenario that it's it would be forced to deploy its armed forces uh, in Eastern Europe, what would that what would that look like? I mean, it's already got, I think, some uh, air forces in Poland from the last time that I checked. Um so what would uh, you know further escalation of military deployment look like
1: Well I think that the United States is going to avoid military escalation uh over Ukraine. Um I think we had the opportunity, we might still have barely have the opportunity uh to put troops into Ukraine in order to protect that territory for, from an invasion. Uh whoever has their troops in a territory first decreases the likelihood of an invasion, I think, quite significantly. But it also increases the risk, because if there is an invasion, you could end up with a militarized conflict between the U.S. and Russia, for example, um, which has, you know, huge repercussions um, and threats that it entails. But, um, But given that we didn't put troops in the ground, which I previously advocated, Um, I I don't see that we're going to be putting troops in the ground now. What I do think we're going to do is continue what we have done, which was supply the Ukrainians with uh, shoulder-fired Stinger missiles that can take down airplanes and uh, shoulder-fired Javelin anti-tank missiles that can take out tanks and other armored tracked vehicles that the uh, Russians are already flowing uh, into Donetsk and Luhansk, the eastern part of Ukraine, that is rebel controlled. Now, the big question, I think, um, is whether those tanks will then proceed further into the entire uh, provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, um, or whether they might even go to the Dnieper River, which is cuts through Kiev. Um, or whether they would go and try to take the whole country. The country is very large. It's the size of Afghanistan, almost. Um, When the United States had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, we had a very hard time holding it. And the uh, Taliban did not have uh, these shoulder-fired weapons that could take out uh, tanks and and airplanes. Um, Ukrainians will have shoulder-fired weapons. the Russians are not gonna have that many more troops than we had, if you include our contractors and our international tr- the international uh, troops that added to our 100,000. And so I think it's gonna be very hard for Russia to hold this territory. They might be, they will be able to take Kiev and hold it. They will be able to take the big cities and hold them. Um, but I think they're gonna have a hard time controlling all of the countryside. Um, and so it could be a very long and protracted and bloody uh, conflict if Russia actually decides to go deeper than it has. Um, As soon as they pass the controlled regions that the rebels previously controlled, I would expect these uh, shoulder-fired weapons to be used against their vehicles and their planes. Um, So we'll see what happens. And and, And if you add to that, the massive financial sanctions that will be taken against them already they've lost Nord Stream 2 which is the gas pipeline Um, you know they've there there's going to be heavy sanctions right at the get-go already um, against individuals oligarchs their money that's held in London Paris elsewhere Um, so you know what what Putin has done is a major mistake a major strategic mistake for the Russian people Um, He's apparently revanchist, revisionist, trying to go turn back the dial of history to get back to the Soviet Union or what teeny scraps of the old Soviet Union he could find on some of the uh, borders of Russia. Uh, it's a very, very short-sighted perspective and strategy and tactic. Um, he's, you know, he's pushing 80, he's, he's getting older. I'm not sure that he's thinking straight um, as, a, as a dictator uh... the people he surrounds him with are likely yes men who want to uh... curry favor with him and they're gonna tell him what he wants to hear which is probably that he can succeed and take back ukraine he just needs to he just needs to push the button which he's he appears to be doing at this point
0: yeah i uh... i think i saw this recording uh... of him meeting with his security council yesterday and he was sitting there like, a, like an elementary school teacher and his his generals uh, i don't think they were even provided a desk like they were just Sitting there in front of him, and he was questioning them on live TV one by one, and saying, you know, asking basically their opinion on Ukraine. And obviously, you know, this is sort of like a forced confession, right? There, they would be, <laughs> they would be obviously talking, you know, in favor of in favor of Putin, because you know, otherwise it, it would very uh, it would look kind of bad on them. Um, so, you know, do you, do you think that's a way that sort of says, uh, you know, that's how Putin justifies his Um, you know, action towards Ukraine, say, hey, you know, it's not only me, but all my ministers, uh, which you know, he can extrapolate to the uh, Russian people and whatnot.
1: Absolutely. By putting them on TV like that, he's getting their complicity there. He's engaging them as uh, co-conspirators, as it will, um, in this violence against another territory. Um, And, you know, of course, they couldn't say no uh Or they could have, but they would have been out of a job or worse um so yeah, I mean this is it's a tragedy, and uh this is what happens with dictatorships. They make very bad decisions, they force people to go along with them um and then they often fail because of it uh that's the danger for for Putin and I think you know he's basically been told by by uh the Western world leaders in the Western world that he's making a mistake. Um, That the consequences are going to be severe in blood and treasure, and he will not survive as leader of Russia. He, you know, it's a tragedy for him personally because he, you know, he could have just rested on his laurels and maintained his position in Moscow essentially forever until he dies. But what he's doing now is he's risking it all uh, for for Ukraine, which is um,
0: and, and what he's got planned for Ukraine in terms of right. And uh, from what you said you know, previously, I kind of wanted to bring up a commentary piece published on Wall Street Journal. Uh, and it says, strategically, Taiwan is as vital uh, you know, as a part of the first island chain of the Western Pacific. And the US military deployment in Eastern Europe would involve major uh, additional tactical resources uh, in, in air, in space, in naval and logistic forces uh, to go along. So how much, in your opinion, is this a distraction from the uh, United States-Indo-Pacific commitments?
1: I think it's a huge distraction, and I think it's going to distract our allies in Europe. Um, no one wants to take on the bigger bully China instead of the smaller bully bully put Putin. Um, you know, But at the same time, we have to defend every inch of democratic territory, and we have to also think of, I think, Putin as a bit of a proxy for Xi Jinping in the same way that I think we should think about the Taliban as proxies for Xi Jinping. Taliban were being directly supported by Pakistan. Pakistan was being heavily supported, billions of dollars by China. Um, And so we need to think about these conflicts as very interrelated. Um, We can't, we shouldn't give up an inch of territory in Ukraine, in Afghanistan, uh, over Taiwan, in the South China Sea, uh, in the Senkakus, these are all related, and when you give up an inch in one place, all the dictators and autocrats and terrorists in the other place uh start licking their chops and they wanna grab some territory of their own um so we have to be much tougher uh both economically, which I think we are readily doing um but also militarily, we have to put our troops on the line we have to we have to draw red lines. Um, and we have to say, we're not, we're, you know, if you, if you take Taiwan, we're going to fight the United States and our allies are going to fight. Um, if you take Ukraine, we're going to fight. Um, I think if we had done that before Putin invaded that we, you know, he wouldn't have invaded because he doesn't want to risk, um, a war with the United States and NATO. Um, but unfortunately we, we have not been willing to, uh, take that risk, um, for that moral cause, and for that, uh, you know, I think it's a very strategic approach that ultimately ends up with peace. It's the approach of peace through strength, instead of uh, peace through gradually backing off, which is what we're essentially doing in Ukraine right now.
0: Right, and uh, I, I kind of wanted to ask about, so, so we covered China's side, and we covered a little bit of, of Kremlin, um, their perspective. So I kind of wanted to ask about Washington's actions and what your thoughts are about their, their the, th- the sanctions they imposed so far um, so as of as of yesterday they've imposed sanctions on both separatist regions uh, in the in the eastern Ukraine border and uh, I, I heard on online news today that they are going to impose uh, the, the sanctions they're going to impose sanctions on Russia itself um, so how do you how do you see the situation here what do you think uh, President Biden is going to uh, going to do and what what's his considerations here with Ukraine um, involving Russia and China?
1: Well, I think that the the idea with the sanctions is to hold off on the heaviest sanctions um, as a threat to make sure that uh, Putin doesn't really invade um, a large swath of Ukrainian territory, whether that's uh, the full provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, or whether that's all the way to Dnieper or the, all of Ukraine. Uh, already you have diplomatic personnel from Lviv, which is in the far west of the country, have already evacuated to Poland. Um, so, you know, there is a concern by the United States that uh, Putin could actually invade the whole country very quickly. Um, it could happen in a day or two. Uh, his his troops could uh, do a blitzkrieg a lightning strike that takes Kiev that takes l'viv uh, in a very short period of time um, so what they're doing with the sanctions is they're holding off with the mo- with the most powerful sanctions which are for example um, denying Russia the ability to use u s dollars or uh pounds sterling in their uh, international uh, sales. So a lot of contracts, oil and gas contracts around the world that uh, Russia will have had, will have been uh, denominated in uh, US dollars or pounds sterling. He knows that we're going to do this, and so he has been preparing by uh, renegotiating his contracts into euros. Uh, Unfortunately, the, the European Union is not Uh, taking as tough a stand uh, through sanctions uh, on Russia, and they have not said that they would um, disallow uh, the use of euros uh, for international transfers. The other thing that we could do that is really the nuclear option for uh, international financial sanctions is kicking uh, Russia out of the SWIFT network, which is an interbank transfer system uh, globally. Um, if we kick them out of SWIFT, um, it would be very basically. It shuts down their entire economy and its relationship uh, to banking internationally. Uh, this would make it very difficult for them to uh, transfer, you know, export oil and gas um, and the other things that they export. Um, it would. It would. The, f- the final option is we can do secondary sanctions on countries that are doing business with Russia. So for example, we could sanction China uh, for importing oil and gas from Russia. Um, that right. would also have a huge effect if we did something like that.
0: Right, um, so on the big picture here, how in your opinion uh, should the United States structure its policies towards uh, Russia and China now, uh, you know which, which one of which one of these autocracies and you know both are now closer to a dictatorship pose a larger threat to the, to the United States?
1: Well I think China is the bigger threat um, and I always use that metric of uh, GDP. Uh, China's GDP is almost or approximately 10 times bigger than Russia's GDP. Um, people have called Russia Cote d'Ivoire with nu- nuclear weapons Yes, it has a lot of nuclear weapons and it has a fairly decent military, but um, you know it doesn't match up to China's economic power. And China uses that economic power not only to build its military, um, you know, which has a massive number of personnel because of the, and a massive potential number of personnel because it's such a large company country by population. Um, but China is able to use that economic power. For influence, political influence around the world. So essentially, they're they're able to bribe politicians. They're able to, um, you know, whether that's directly uh, by giving them bags of cash, or they're able to bribe them through uh, promises of aid, loans, uh, you know, cheap loans, nice repayments to schedules. But the truth is that these loans that they give around the world through uh, the Belt and Road Initiative are often very very opaque we don't know what's in them the people uh, the, in the country that's taking them don't know what's in them who knows are the president and the finance minister who may very well have been paid off by China with these bags of cash so uh, they've got tremendous power um, they know how to wield it they know how to use it um, in a way I think that Moscow is not doing And and in fact I think that more likely Moscow is so much under the thumb of Beijing that it is doing Beijing's bidding, which is what makes me think that in in the current case of the invasion of Ukraine, it is so not in the interests of Russia to do this at this point, to make itself an international pariah and focus of the world's attention, um, that it makes me suspect that it's possible that Beijing uh, had asked Putin to do this, or encouraged Putin to do this in some way. So I think we have to consider that as a possibility, and I think if you see even the debate in the British Parliament recently um, that's just happened today, you already see them uh, using this as a as a justification for their focus on Europe and their focus on the Atlantic um, as opposed to uh, the alternative, which is an Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, however, they, they are saying that they, are, they should be increasing their defense spending to two to 3%, um, which will be able to be used in many different ways, not only to deter Russia, but potentially uh, to join the United States in deterring China from an invasion of Taiwan, for example. Um, and the other thing that we need to consider is we're, for example, we've given Australia, we're in the process of giving Australia um, access to nuclear propulsion technology, for their submarines. We need to consider giving uh, a nuclear deterrent, an independent nuclear deterrent, to the frontline democracies that are facing off against countries like China and Russia. So Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in the 90s uh, for a promise of its territorial integrity from the United States, UK, and Moscow. Of course, Moscow is immediately reneging on that promise. And in a way, the United States and, and UK, by backing out of the country, are also reneging on that promise, unfortunately. Um, I think we're trying to do with financial sanctions, um, you know, what uh, our our boots on the ground would have done. But if Putin, it, we're in, in the process, we're really risking the Ukrainian people because, in the, because Putin could easily uh, move his troops into all of Ukraine, and it would lead to a massive and bloody battle that would destroy the country. Um, so, and those are those are democratic people who want to join the European Union. They want to join NATO. And in a way, we're th- we're risking all of those people uh, with our failure to have boots on the ground and really protect them with our own troops. Um, and I think that we, in a way, we're doing the same thing with the Taiwan people right now by leaving them a bit out on the limb. Where we don't even call them a Taiwan. We don't call them a sovereign country. I think these things have to change. We have to be much more committed to the defense of democracies around the world, whether or not they're in our alliance systems. We have to integrate them into our alliance systems more rapidly. Um, and we need to show the dictators of the world that we're, we are ready to fight in the defense of democracy. Um, we are w- willing to risk our own lives and our own, and our own treasure. Um, for this, we can't just let them pick us off one at a time um because ultimately, as soon as they pick off Taiwan or Ukraine, they become more powerful um They get all of the resources, all of the people that are in those countries um and we get less powerful because they're no longer available as allies um their trading systems are no longer available to us um their their finance financial help when we need uh them for a uh for a conflict. Um, for a pandemic, their industrial ecosystem is no longer available. So um, every time a dictator takes a little democracy around the world, we're act- our own security is is harmed in a very serious way. Not least because our reputation is harmed. Uh, we do not st- we're seen as an unreliable ally when we don't stand up for a country like Taiwan, for a country like uh, the Philippines, which has lost uh, some islands to china recently in the south china sea when we don't stand up for ukraine with whom we have a, a treaty um, you know essentially guaranteeing their territorial integrity so we have to stand by our word or we will uh, lose the re- good reputation of reliability and strength that we've had uh... from winning the world war two and from winning the cold war against the soviets
0: So. On what you kind of talked about here, um, it kind of goes along with a theme in your book, "The Concentration of Power," by uh, I think it's published by Optimum Publishing International, uh, in, in which you kind of talk about, you know, hegemonic powers as black holes uh, that attracts, uh, you know, powers around them, and you know, China is a great, uh, great example for this, where they are essentially exporting their influence across the world. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what you you know think about the China threat? In a, in a big picture here?
1: Well, China's economy has grown so quickly um, that by one measure, GDP purchasing power parity, which is how much you can actually buy with your money, how much bread you can get, how much steel you can get, how many ships you can build. Um, by that measure, China surpassed the United States and the European Union years ago. Um, it's so It's the biggest economy in the world by that measure and uh that is and it has control over that economy in a in a way that is much more than say the president biden has over the u.s economy or uh definitely more than the european union president has over uh the eu's economy um so that is a concentration of power in beijing that's quite remarkable um it's a bigger concentration of power in the world than we've ever seen in history Um, and I would argue that there's an aggregative effect, um, of that power. And I think we see that, um, by essentially Beijing being able to pull strings around the world, pull a string and Putin, uh, invades Ukraine pull a string and, um, you know, uh, United States and, and Britain refocus on, uh, the Atlantic relationship and, and Russia as opposed to the bigger threat in Beijing. Um, and I think that w- what you're seeing in this conflict is you're seeing Beijing uh, essentially coming out of it high and dry uh, after, a Beijing, uh, after the Beijing Winter Olympics, um, really trying to burnish its image there um, and to totally distract uh, the world from what it was focusing on just a month or two ago, which was the genocide that's happening in China the uh, threats of invasion against Taiwan, um, the expansion of artificial islands in the South China Sea, the daily, um, you know, uh, maritime fishing fleets, which is really militarized fishing fleets that are surrounding the Senkaku Islands of Japan, um, the takeover of chunks of the Himalayas from India by force, and also a small country called Bhutan that's lost some territory recently to China, not to mention China's involvement in the genocide in Myanmar that against the Rohingya um, and the its lack of action against that. And also uh, its support for the generals in Myanmar that just had a coup. So what we're seeing is around the world, we're seeing a concentration of power. That power is very, very illiberal. Um, and unfortunately things are starting to you know uh gravitate around beijing as the center of that power um so that's in a way why uh while i while i do look on a global level my expertise is um sort of geopolitics globally um i do focus a lot on china just because um beijing is that is emerging as this cent- as, as a center of global power Um, that we really have to take more seriously, and we just aren't. Uh, On a regular basis, we fail to take it seriously, uh, and we keep getting surprised.
0: Well, let's hope that doesn't occur in the uh, so far free democratic world for now. So thank you very much, Dr. Anders Kaur, for your time today. Thank
1: you very much. Great to meet you.